welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Be faithful in marriage. Exodus chapter 20 verse 14 Contemporary English Version Hello and welcome to Anchored by Truth brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm Victoria Kay. We're happy to have you with us for another episode of Anchored by Truth. Today we are continuing our series on the Ten Commandments. In the studio we have R.D. Fierro. R.D. is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. So far in this series, we have covered the first six commandments. Today, we are going to discuss the seventh commandment, which we heard in our opening scripture. R.D. Many Bible commentators divide the Ten Commandments into two groups they call tables. The first table consists of the first four commandments, which speak about our relationship with God. The last six commandments speak to our relationship with other people. Of the second table of the Ten Commandments, five out of the six commandments are phrased, you shall not, or, as it's more traditionally phrased, thou shalt not. The first of the you shalt nots is that you shalt not murder, and we covered that commandment in the last episode. Today, we're going to move on to you shall not commit adultery. Are there any opening observations you'd like to make before we do? Well, before we get into today's discussion, I would also like to welcome everyone to Anchored by Truth, to this episode and to every episode of Anchored by Truth. We hope people are joining us frequently, primarily because we do do a lot of our episodes in series of episodes on a topic that's large enough that we can't fit all of the material in just one episode. So we would encourage everybody, if they hear something that interests them, go back and check out some earlier episodes of Anchored by Truth in that same series. And then, of course, stay with us, because we do like to cover subjects in as much depth as our short time on the radio or the podcast will permit us to do. Now, there are a couple of observations that I would like to make up front. One is that dividing the commandments into a group of the first four commandments and a second group of the last six commandments, that is a common way of approaching the Ten Commandments. But it is not the only way that commentators have divided the commandments. Some commentators have divided the commandments into groups consisting of the first three commandments and a second group consisting of the last seven And the thought behind this division is that the first three commandments, which are to have no other gods before me, don't make any graven images, and don't take God's name in vain, all pertain to God's individual person and to God's majesty. Whereas the fourth commandment, which again is often included in the so-called first table, to honor the Sabbath day, some commentators see that commandment as the first commandment that applies to human behavior. And there are a few commentators who have divided the commandments into a division of two commandments up front and then eight commandments. So one observation I want to make is that while the segregation of the commandments into a first and second table is common, there is not unanimity on how that segregation should be accomplished. 
Now, a second observation I would make is that even though eight of the Ten Commandments begin with a you shall not or more traditionally thou shalt not, all of the commandments should be viewed as having both affirmations and prohibitions. For instance, we heard about the first shall not of the second table last week, which is you shall not murder. That's a clear prohibition. But the flip side is that we have a duty, in addition to not murdering anyone, to protect life. We should take affirmative action to guard human life because all human beings are beings made in the image of God. Human beings are different from all other creatures because we bear the image of the Creator, and bearing that image confers an inherent dignity and status on people. We're special because God is special. No matter what contemporary culture tries to tell us, we all retain that special status because of God's decree. God's image may be fractured or marred in us, but it is still discernible. At any rate, the point is that the commandments have both affirmative and prohibitive aspects. Right. And a third observation I would make is that as we ponder the Ten Commandments, we need to remember the historical context in which they were given. The Hebrews were leaving Egypt after an extended period of servitude in a land that was not their own, and the Ten Commandments were given to them a little over two months after they had left Egypt. So the Hebrews were starting a new chapter in their national identity, their national story. And as such, it made sense that God wanted to establish a moral and ethical foundation for his nation that reflected his character and which would distinguish his people very clearly from the cultures that surrounded them. Now, the Hebrews, of course, had lived under the Egyptian civil codes and religious practices for a great many years. Well, of course, those civil codes and those religious practices contained things that were objectionable to God. So God wanted to make sure that his people, when they were starting their new national identity, were going to start out on the right foot. Moreover, God was going to displace the people in the land to which he was sending the Hebrews. He was going to displace those people largely based on the fact that they had perverse and depraved behavioral practices, such as child sacrifice and ritual prostitution. Well, God did not want his people to start out this new chapter of their national identity with the kind of ethical codes from the place they had just left, or by being drawn into the practices of the societies that they were replacing. So it made perfect sense that at that time, God would want to start them out with a firm set of standards on which their new nation was to be built. And part of what God wanted to prevent was his people from adopting many of the pagan sexual practices which were so common in that time in Palestine. But, as we've mentioned before, the behavioral standards that are contained in the Ten Commandments were not new in the sense that they never existed before. To the contrary, prohibitions against murder and lying had been in existence since the time man lived in the Garden of Eden. God was reaffirming an existing standard but codifying it in such a way that the Hebrews would have no excuse for not knowing how they were expected to behave. Now, the Seventh Commandment is often phrased you shall not commit adultery. But for our opening scripture, you pick the contemporary English version which says, quote, be faithful in marriage, unquote. Why did you choose that version? Because I think that the contemporary English version of the seventh commandment gives a better sense of the real scope of the commandment. How so? 
In our society and culture, the word adultery is often limited just to refer to a sexual relationship that occurs outside of marriage. So if you define adultery in that way, that narrowly, well, an unmarried person literally could not commit adultery. And that is not what the Seventh Commandment is intended to talk about. So what you're saying is that it would be possible to limit the definition of adultery to one specific action, and doing so would actually defeat the purpose of God giving the commandment in the first place. It rather sounds like using the letter of the law to defeat the spirit of the law. Well, if we defined adultery as just having a sexual affair outside of marriage, and that's what we would be doing if we adopted the most conventional cultural definition of adultery, if we adopted that definition, as you said, we would in effect be using the letter of the law to defeat its spirit. So the contemporary English version of the Seventh Commandment uses a do rather than a do not to express the command. The contemporary English version says to be faithful in marriage. I think that is more encompassing of what is actually in view in the Seventh Commandment. In the first place, there are many people whose marriages have gotten into trouble even when there was no sexual activity outside of marriage. You know, it's possible to be unfaithful to your husband or your wife and never have a physical relationship with someone else. Especially in our day and age when it's common for both a husband and a wife to work outside the home. Many people will spend many of their waking hours with people other than their spouse. In fact, it's not uncommon these days for people to spend far more time with the people at their job than they do with their husband or wife. That always presents a temptation for someone to develop a closer relationship with someone else than their husband or wife. We have even coined phrases like work-wife because it's so common for a man or woman to develop their closest relationships at the job rather than at home. Exactly. The economic patterns of our culture, our country, our society, and many others have introduced relationship temptations that would have been unknown even 20, 30, or 50 years ago. You know, and it's worth noting that the Seventh Commandment was given to a society that was overwhelmingly agrarian. Most people in ancient societies made their living by farming or by tending flocks or herds. Families were together almost all the time. And when they weren't, more likely than not, it was for a very specific reason like a religious festival or a public gathering. So the individual in that day and time was going to be in a group and was not necessarily ever going to be in prolonged contact with other single individuals, especially those of the opposite gender. So in short, people today face far more temptation to develop relationships outside their immediate families simply because we are much more mobile and we are less tied to immediate family contact. But the presence of greater amounts of temptation does not lessen the force of the commandment. In fact, if anything, it makes the seventh commandment more important because it means we need to take more care to avoid entanglements when we are away from our spouse or family. And again, we aren't necessarily talking about sexual activity. A lot of people who spend all day at their work are going to be tempted to make their primary source of emotional support someone at their job, rather than their spouse. And with the internet age, ironically, it is now possible for people to communicate and share intimate communication even when they are not physically present. 
This makes it possible for people to develop emotional connections with people they don't spend physical time with, like working together. People today can have internet affairs, which would also be a violation of the seventh commandment. We can see this from what Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, which says, quote, Now the works of the flesh are manifest. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lasciviousness, unquote. Right. Now, one current Bible commentator, Rick Renner, has said this, and I'm quoting, When Paul begins his list of the works of the flesh, he begins with the sexual sins of adultery, fornication, and uncleanness. The word adultery and fornication both come from the same Greek word, the word pornea. This word includes all sexual activity outside of marriage, including both adultery and homosexuality. When referring to a woman who has committed adultery, the New Testament used the word pornos. This is the word for a prostitute, and it vividly informs us that a woman who has committed adultery has prostituted herself. She may not have sold herself for money. Perhaps she has traded her heart, her body, or her emotions for romance, for emotional support, or for a variety of other things. But regardless of why she did it, God says she has sold herself and entered into the sin of prostitution, end quote. Wow, that's a pretty sobering assessment. And even though Mr. Reiner has primarily pointed out the problem of women committing adultery, we should note that the same thing goes for men. A man who commits adultery has prostituted himself just as much as a woman. That's one of the truly sad comments we have to make about the cultural changes of the last few decades. Sexual deviancy has now become an equal opportunity plague. Yes. So one big takeaway from this discussion is that the Seventh Commandment is not limited to an isolated activity which would then free people up to somehow engage in other kinds of immorality, whether that immorality is sexual or not, and yet somehow claim that they did not violate the Seventh Commandment. They did not commit, quote, adultery. Now, Jesus pointed out this fact in his famous observation in Matthew 5, 27, 28. In the New International Version of those verses, Jesus said, quote, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Close quote. Now, it's important to note that Jesus was not saying the man who looks at a woman lustfully has committed a sin that is equal to the man who actually engaged in sexual activity with that woman. Jesus is not equating the two from an ethical or moral scoring standpoint. What Jesus is pointing out is that we as people want to limit the scope of our sins to very specific actions so that we can somehow claim that we weren't being sinful at all. But God doesn't look at our sin that way. God looks at our hearts. And in large part, he looks at our hearts because that's where all sins begin. And Jesus noted that when he said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 18 through 20, The things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, unquote. That's also from the New International Version. So we can see that the Seventh Commandment is not limited to an isolated activity in a way that a lot of people might like to define it. The Seventh Commandment is concerned with faithfulness, with fidelity. 
The contemporary English version expresses this very well when it says be faithful in marriage. And while the seventh commandment was specifically focused on marriage, let's remember that there are only two human relationships that God has used to define his own relationship with people, marriage and parenting. So what you're saying is, is that God takes marriage so seriously that he has used the marriage relationship as a representation of how he relates to his church. For instance, let's listen to Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, when he's trying to emphasize to the Corinthians church of his deep concern for them. Paul wrote, quote, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promise you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as pure virgin to him, unquote. And of course, there is one of the most famous of all the Bible prophecies concerning Christ's second coming in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 through 9. The Apostle John wrote this about Christ's return to the earth for his church, quote, For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear, unquote. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, quote, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, unquote. And he added, quote, These are the true words of God, unquote. That's also from the New International Version. Correct. You know, in our day and age, there has been a general decline in the respect and reverence for marriage, but that's a consequence of our sin. The Bible always treats the marriage relationship with the utmost gravity. And as one commentator has said, the sixth commandment, which prohibits murder, is all about God forbidding the destruction of the people he created in his image. Well, the seventh commandment follows that to prevent people from defiling the body, from defiling the people that he created in his own image. Well, I suppose some people might point out that there were many instances in the Bible of even Bible heroes engaging in sex with multiple partners. And some of those instances seem to be okay with God. For instance, King David had multiple wives. And Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 7 and 8 say, quote, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you, and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah, unquote. So, verse 8 says that God gave King Saul's wives to David. That seems to be inconsistent with the Seventh Commandment. Well, certain implications of the Seventh Commandment that we see around us today don't recognize the differences in cultural and civil conditions that have been present in other times and other places. Now, in the case of the verse that you just mentioned, we have to note that God was giving the wives of King Saul into King David's arms. So giving Saul's wives into David's arms was a euphemistic way of saying that the wives were being entrusted to David for David to protect them and provide for them, not necessarily just for sexual purposes. And let's remember that we're talking about, in the case of King Saul and King David, we're talking about a monarchy. We're talking about a monarchical system of government where a marriage relationship to a king had implications with respect to a claim on the throne. If Saul's wives had not been entrusted to David, it might have been possible for another man to marry one or more and then assert a claim to the throne. 
So by giving Saul's wives to David, God was actually precluding the possibility of a bloody power struggle by one of Saul's relatives or supporters. But David was not the only Bible hero to have multiple wives or sexual partners. Abraham had a son with his wife's maid, and his grandson Jacob, who was the patriarch of the twelve tribes of Israel, actually had his twelve sons by four different women. Leah and Rachel were his wives, but he also had sons by their maids. Did God approve of all these relationships? Well, I think it would be more correct to say that God did not intervene or intrude into the actions of those sinful people, which resulted in the relationships that you're talking about. God managed the fallout from those unfortunate situations in order to continue the progress of his plan of redemption. But that is not nearly the same thing as saying God approved of those relationships. You know, in the case of Abraham and Hagar, Hagar was Sarah's maid, that relationship produced a conflict that continues even down to this day, more than 3,000 years later. That conflict is continuing through the descendants of Hagar and her son Ishmael, and through the descendants of Sarah and her son Isaac. Ishmael is considered to be the ancestor of the modern Arabs, and Sarah's son Isaac is, of course, considered to be the ancestor of the Jews. And while Jacob, who was the patriarch who had the 12 sons that founded the 12 tribes of Israel, had two wives, the only reason he had two wives was because Leah and Rachel's father Laban had deceived Jacob into marrying Leah. Jacob loved Rachel, and he would gladly have married only her. And there is certainly no indication in the Bible that Rachel herself could not have been the mother to all of the 12 sons that God intended to produce through Jacob. Well, of course, there's a lot of unfortunate circumstances that have arisen. Family troubles, conflicts, many, many different kinds of family dysfunction. There's a lot of trouble that has ensued because human beings tried to take matters into their own hands that God had reserved for himself. In the case of Abraham and Hagar, Sarah was the one who insisted that Abraham have relations with her maid because in those days the child of the maid would have been reckoned legally as Sarah's son. But as we've said, Sarah's attempt to help fulfill God's promise to bless Abraham and his descendants, Sarah's attempt to help God actually has been creating human misery now for over 3,000 years. God can and does bring good things out of the actions of sinful people. But that is an illustration of God's grace and mercy, and this in no way should serve as an excuse for sin or violating one of God's commandments. So one thing we can say for sure is that none of these situations, whether David, Abraham, or Jacob, are consistent with God's perfect plan of one husband married to one wife. All of these situations either resulted from or produced situations filled with heartache and strife. The same thing is true with all the other episodes in the Bible where the characters departed from the simple sense of the seventh commandment. King Solomon had hundreds of wives and concubines, and the Bible records that they turned his heart away from the one true God. The first recorded instance in the Bible of polygamy was in Genesis chapter 4 with a man named Lamech who was a murderer and a violent man. Samuel's father had married two women, but the Bible records a house filled with jealousy, spite, and vitriol. There are no recorded instances in the Bible where the Bible speaks commendably of polygamy or sexual relationships with multiple partners. God may have tolerated such situations, but the ideal for human relationships remains the one he designed at the beginning and expressed in the seventh commandment. 
So one thing we can see from all of this is that the seventh commandment, while it is expressed in the specifics of marriage and sex, points to a more fundamental attribute that God expects to be present in his people, faithfulness and fidelity. God expects his children to be faithful in all of their dealings with other people, and he expects them to respect the rights and privileges that he has conferred on his image bearers. God created the marriage bond to bring a completeness to a creature that he had built to live in communion and not by themselves, not in a solitary fashion. While some of God's prophets were called to live solitary lives, largely solitary lives, those were special situations, and that was not God's desire or intention for people generally. You know, but anytime human beings live alongside or in the company of others, there is always going to be the possibility of betrayal. And that's what the seventh commandment is specifically prohibiting. We are not to betray God, and we are not to betray the most important person in our lives, our God-given spouse. Because it is absolutely certain that anyone who is willing to betray their spouse is going to be willing to betray anyone else that might be a part of their life. And that's a really important point. Someone willing to cheat on their husband or wife is probably going to be willing to cheat on just about every other relationship in their life, whether it's their employer, their best friend, or their family. Now, some cynics are going to say that the Seventh Commandment did not address every conceivable situation involving sex and human relationships. And we human beings are prone to pile questions on questions as we try to find some loophole or excuse for our behavior. Our questions reveal our sinful hearts. We ask them because we want to know the boundaries of the commandment. We want to know how far we can deviate from God's plain instructions before we get into trouble. I see the point you're making. The scope of potential violations doesn't matter to the person who intends to be obedient. The concept of fidelity in marriage is pretty clear. If our intent is simply to obey the commandment, we will not only not cheat on our husband or wife, we will go out of our way to avoid causing them harm because we don't want to run the risk of being unfaithful. And we will accept the fact that God's standard for physical intimacy is restricted to a husband and wife within the boundaries of the marital bond. It is our sinfulness that wants us to begin to develop some kind of exhaustive set of rules because we want to be able to argue that we aren't guilty even if we wind up doing what we shouldn't. And that's a topic we will continue to explore. Sounds like a good time to go to God in prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer that our hearts and minds might be illuminated by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit so that our lives might increasingly conform to His will. Prayer for Illumination by the Holy Spirit Great and mighty God, You are the searcher of men's hearts and the only true joy for our souls. We worship gladly the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you came to take away our spiritual blindness and to make us alive to things of God. At Pentecost, you confirmed your presence in the world and established your dominion in the hearts of those who belong to the Son. We praise you because you are the one who strengthens us against the powers of wickedness that attack our humanity. By ourselves, we could never stand against the wiles of the evil one. 
but in you we have victory, for greater are you than Satan who is in the world. Holy Spirit, you regenerate our hearts and bring light to our mind. Since you fully possess all knowledge and wisdom, you are the supreme teacher who imparts wisdom and give us the ability to absorb and understand that which you teach. Lord, we pray that we would be sensitive to your leading. Time and again you have gone before us to find the path that we should travel, and you have never left us, even in those times we have grieved you or resisted your work. We marvel at the grace manifested to us by you, abiding with us and with the angels cry, Holy, holy, holy is our God, and worthy to be praised. We bow before the light of our lives, the Lord of the universe, the Lamb of God. In Christ's precious name, we pray and give thanks. Amen. Amen. Is the Bible important in your life? Supporting Anchored by Truth with a contribution is an easy way to put your faith into action. The opportunity to help is available at crystalseabooks.com. How wonderful would it be for Jesus to commend us because we made His Word a priority in our lives and giving. We are grateful for your support and partnership. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage friends to tune in also, or to listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where We're not perfect, but our boss is. And for those of you who need that website one more time, that's crystalcbooks.com. Crystal, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-C-S-E-A, and books, B-O-O-K-S.com. Thank you for your support.